What's going on, Hume? How you doing? You guys have a good day? I had a good day. I'm so glad to be here with you again tonight. We're talking about truth this week, and uh, we started by talking about the fact that truth is real and truth is absolute because there is an eternal creator God in heaven. And then we continued last night by talking about the truth of scripture, that God doesn't desire that the truth would be something far away or something irrelevant. God wants the truth in your life to change you. And his strategy for that is the scriptures. And tonight I wanna begin to actually jump in. Now that we've laid the foundation, for what truth is, where truth comes from, and how we access truth, I wanna actually start to talk about the truth that God reveals. So let's, let's say that we believe that there is a God and he is the source of truth and the scriptures are his delivery mechanism, then what do we see when we look to the scriptures to understand the truth that God reveals? That's what I wanna begin to talk to you about tonight. You guys ever heard of the Mona Lisa? like the most famous painting in the world, kind of a grumpy looking lady. Uh, it's, a, it's like a little bit of a depressing painting, but it is very, very famous. And it's been owned by France since the year 1797. It's been on display in a uh, museum there. And it's, it hasn't been sold for well over 200 years, so there's no way to know like, what the actual value is, but it is insured. They have insurance on the Mona Lisa, and recently that insurance was valued at, check this, $870 million. Almost a billion bucks for that grumpy looking lady in France. Now, recently, I think this was about two months ago, someone goes into the Louvre, which is the museum that houses the Mona Lisa, and they are disguised. It's a young man who is disguised as an old woman. He's wearing a wig and he's wearing kind of like this robe overcoat thing and he is in a wheelchair. He goes rolling into this museum. He gets up to the Mona Lisa exhibit where it is on display and there's like this kind of guardrail in front of it. And he springs out of his old lady costume with a cake in his hands, jumps over the guardrail, and smashes cake all over the Mona Lisa. I am not joking. When I'm done preaching, go look it up. It actually happened. Now listen. Listen. I don't know what that guy thought he was gonna get done. Apparently he's not the sharpest tool in the shed because it's behind bulletproof glass, so he didn't do anything. He only smeared the protective surface that was in front of the Mona Lisa. But when I heard this, I started to ask myself, like, how could this happen? How could this happen to the Mona Lisa? And here's the reason it happened. It happened because the Mona Lisa is on display. The Mona Lisa, despite how valuable it is, is not locked away in secret in some cage where no one can access it. The Mona Lisa is on display for anyone who would come to the museum to see. And not only to see, but to evaluate and to judge and to respond to. And some people are so moved by the Mona Lisa that they stand in front of it and they cry. And some people apparently hate it so much they want to smear cake on it. 
It has apparently a very polarizing response, but it is available. It is on display for people to see and interact with and judge and evaluate. And in the person and the words and the works and the ministry of Jesus Christ, God is putting the truth on display. God is not hiding the truth away where no one can see it. God is putting the truth out into the world in full view, and he is doing it through the words and the works of Jesus. And so if we had one idea that I want you to focus on tonight, it's simply that. The words and the works of Jesus display the truth of God to the world. It displays the truth of God to the world. What Jesus says and what Jesus does is how God makes the truth visible to you and to me. And so if tonight you desire to know the truth, to know what scripture reveals as true, and to know the truth that is based in the eternal creator God, you need look no further than the person and the words and the works of Jesus Christ. He himself, remember we said in the first message, he claimed, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. Jesus says, I am the living embodiment of truth. You can look to me and know what is true. And so in the Gospel of John, the ministry of Jesus, after we move through chapter 1, we reviewed a little bit, Jesus calls some of his disciples and he kicks off his ministry in chapter 2. He shows his supernatural power to a limited group of people by turning water into wine, a very famous story about Jesus. And then he confronts the corruption of the religious leaders by turning over the tables in the temple. And then chapter 3, he has this big conversation with a man named Nicodemus about the work of the Holy Spirit and about the new new birth that you must have to enter the kingdom of God. And then in chapters four, five, and six, Jesus goes public. Jesus is going to begin with some private interactions, and then his ministry is going to go to the masses. And that's what I want to begin to talk to you about tonight. I want to show you with some highlights, some snapshots from John four, five, and six, how it is that Jesus displays the truth to the world. When, when Jesus goes out and he begins to open his mouth and he begins to work and he begins to act, what do we see? Well, I want to show you three displays of God's truth through the words and the works of Jesus. And we'll do it like this. Jesus displays the truth by, and here's three displays. Jesus displays the truth by, number one, fulfilling the promise of God. Jesus displays the truth by fulfilling the promise of God. John chapter 4 gives us this scene where Jesus is on a walk through the desert, and he decided to go through an area called Samaria. This area, Samaria, was full of, you might have guessed it, Samaritans that were hated by the Jewish people. They were sort of half Jewish because they had intermarried with the people in the land of Canaan, and so they were looked down upon racially and ethnically and religiously by the Jewish people. They hated each other. But Jesus, on this walk, decides to go through Samaria, and he finds himself standing beside a well with a woman who, by all accounts, he should not have been talking to. The rules of the culture and the time and the religious prejudice said that Jesus should never even have looked at this woman. He should not have cared about her. He should not have wasted a moment or a breath on her. And yet, 
in his kindness and in his love, Jesus stops and he has a transformative conversation with this woman. You may know her as the woman at the well. That's what we call her. And I want to zoom in on just one part of their conversation. But first I want to tell you about my first job. It was at Best Buy. And I was a cashier. I was 16 years old. I thought it was pretty awesome. And one day I was uh, ringing up people's electronics. And this very tall, rather handsome man with huge hands and like Popeye-style forearms comes to the store. And he's getting all kinds of attention in the store. Like from the moment he walked in the door, I could tell people were kind of swarming around him. And he makes his way around the store. And he finally comes up to check out. And he ends up in my cashier lane. And people are still like talking to him and interacting with him. But I had no idea who he was. And so finally, I just asked him. I said, hey, obviously, like, you're somebody that people know. Who are you? And I didn't realize, like, I knew he was somebody, but I didn't realize that standing in front of me was the five-time all-star game hit, like, game-winning. He had the game-winning home run in game seven of the World Series playing for the Arizona Diamondbacks. And he was, like, one of the most famous athletes that Arizona has ever had. His name is Luis Gonzalez. He was like, and I had no idea who he was. I was a Canadian kid, just moved to Arizona, don't care about baseball. This giant man is walking through the store. I have no idea who he is, but he tells me he's Luis Gonzalez. I knew he was somebody, but I just didn't know exactly who he was. I didn't know the full scope of what was going on. And, and Jesus has a moment a little bit like that with the woman at the well. Because as their conversation nears a close, and they've talked, about, they've talked about worship, they've talked about her past, they've talked about her life and her heart, they've talked about all kinds of things. And as they get to the end of the conversation, it becomes very clear that she thinks Jesus is someone important. She knows Jesus is a prophet, which means he speaks on behalf of God. But it becomes very clear that she doesn't know exactly who he is because she's longing for someone else to come after Jesus. She's just waiting for another figure, not Jesus, but someone after Jesus to come and to reveal the truth to God's people. And she says it this way in John 4, 25 and 26. It says, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ And when he comes, he will tell us all things. So this woman is banking on the promises of God. She knows what we talked about last night, that all 39 books of the Old Testament are chocked full of promises and prophecies and longings for a savior, a servant who would come on God's behalf to rescue God's people from their sin. And she was waiting for that guy to come. She said, I know when he gets here, he will tell the truth. He will reveal the truth to us. He'll tell us all things. She says, I am waiting for the Messiah. Jesus' answer is astounding. It is so clear, and it's so compelling to me that he revealed himself this way first to an outcast of a woman. He didn't go public He didn't call a press conference and get all the religious elites. He didn't call the most powerful and influential people to a dinner party at his mansion. He didn't uh, start a PR campaign on social media and try to publish this to the whole world. This first most clear declaration of his identity was made to a woman who was at the well at noon, most likely because she was so 
ashamed and embarrassed of what she had done that she wouldn't even go to the well at the time the other woman would the other women would first thing in the morning she's out there in the heat of the day all by herself a total outcast a person that the society said Jesus shouldn't even talk to and she's looking for the messiah and look at what Jesus says he says you're looking for the messiah i am the messiah I mean, he couldn't be any clearer. She says, when he comes, the Christ, the Messiah, those are two words for the same thing. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. I am the Messiah. (laughs) This This is such an amazing thing for Jesus to say. He says to her, all that you anticipate will happen. All that you long for in the promises of God is fulfilled because I am standing in front of you and talking to you. It's me. I am the fulfillment of all of the promises of God. Jesus squashes any notion that he could just be a nice teacher or a moral example or he could just be a miracle worker or a traveling preacher. He says, I am the Messiah. I am the long-awaited, anointed servant with the Spirit of God here to rescue God's people and set up a new covenant and save you from sin and fulfill all the promises of God. It's me. I who speak to you am he. You see, God had promised a prophet, and Jesus is the ultimate spokesperson for God. Why? Because he is God. God had promised that a priest would come. And Jesus came not just to offer a sacrifice as a priest, but to be a sacrifice as the spotless lamb of God. Jesus is all the promises of God fulfilled. This is why the New Testament says in 2 Corinthians 1.20 that all of the promises of God find their yes and amen in him, in Jesus. So if you were to take a survey of the Old Testament and try to dig through and understand, man, what are all of the promises that God made to his people that caused them to long for and to look for a Savior, a Messiah? You would see that God promised that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. God promised that he would bless all the nations of the world through Abraham's line. He promised that there would be a king who would sit on an everlasting throne and his rule would never be interrupted. He promised that he would crush him, this suffering servant, for our iniquities so that we could be healed by his stripes. He promised that there would be a person, a figure who would come to make a new covenant and to give us a new heart and to us in a new heavens and a new earth and Jesus is saying I am all that I am all of the promises of God fulfilled it's me this is such an amazing thing for Jesus to do and he is displaying the truth of God by fulfilling the promises of God now why does this matter for you and me it matters because this means we can trust God This means God is dependable, and God is faithful, and he always keeps his promises. Have you ever had a a friend or a relative who's just like the flakiest person in the world? Maybe that's you. Maybe you are the flaky person. If you are, I'm sorry for you. There's this one guy that comes to mind for me. Like I, I, uh, I invited him to like get coffee and hang out. He texts me like 30 minutes before. He's like, oh, sorry, man, something came up. I'm not going to be able to be there. You know that person who just bails on you? 
And then later on, I had this like ministry opportunity because we were going to the same church and I like set him up for this, this ministry opportunity with the ministry that I was leading. And like the day before, he's like, oh man, sorry, not going to be able to be there, dude. And he just bailed and like left me hanging. And after enough times of asking this guy to do things and inviting him to things and setting up appointments with him and him flaking out, you know what I stopped doing? I stopped asking him for things. I stopped inviting him to things. Why? Because he proved himself not to be trustworthy, not to be dependable. If we would make an arrangement, he would just break it. If he gave his word, he would just go back on it. You never have to worry about that with God. If God tells you he will do something, he will do it. And he does it 100% of the time, and he does it without fail because he is the truth. And he is the truth embodied, and Jesus is the proof positive that he keeps all his promises. Everything he said would happen, happened when Jesus stepped into the world and he displayed the truth of God. He is the Messiah, the long-awaited one that all of the prophets foretold. And he is intended to help you be able to trust and depend on the faithfulness and the promises of God. He keeps every single one. He is trustworthy and true. He makes a covenant with his people and he keeps it. He will never leave you. He will never abandon his word to you. He will never fail to do what he said he would do. Jesus displays the truth by fulfilling the promise of God. And there's a powerful second display of the truth, and it's this. Jesus displays the truth by exercising the power of God. Now we're going to skip to John chapter 5, where after the conversation with the woman at the well, Jesus ends up back in Jerusalem, and he ends up going to a pool. It's called the Pool of Bethesda. And gathered around this pool are a multitude of people who have ailments and disabilities and who are longing for healing. And the reason that they're gathered at this pool is because there was a superstition at the time that this pool, which probably had some sort of like fountain underneath it or a spring, this pool periodically would be stirred up. Like it would kind of bubble up and the water would start to move. And the superstition said that the first person to get into the water after it bubbled up would receive their healing. Jesus walks up to this pool and he is going to do something amazing. Uh, Back when I was in high school, I was a part of Young Life. And my senior year, there was this guy that I uh, served with in Young Life and his name was Sam. And Sam gathered a bunch of uh, friends who were in Young Life together, and he said, hey, you guys want to go get some breakfast on Saturday? And we were like, yeah, no problem. Let's do it. So we, were, we grabbed some breakfast. We, we went to this place, uh, this place in Phoenix called The Good Egg, which is an amazing restaurant. There's a bunch of them in Phoenix. They do awesome breakfast. And so this big group, probably eight or nine of us, go out to breakfast. We sit down at The Good Egg, and as we walk in and make our way to our seats, everyone in the restaurant knows Sam. They're like, oh, hey, Sam, hey, Sam. He, like, he's getting high fives and he's having conversations. And so I'm thinking, like, he must have worked here. They seem to know him and really like him. And so we sit down, and I don't really think anything of it. And we all enjoy this incredible breakfast. And then at the end of the breakfast, Sam pulls, like, the ultimate swagger move. And he says, hey, don't, don't worry, guys. Breakfast is on me. 
Now keep in mind, we're in high school and we all probably have like 17 and a half dollars in our checking account. And so I'm thinking like, how are you gonna get the money to pay for nine people to eat breakfast out at a restaurant? And he opens up the, he opens up the, you know, the little black book where you pay, you get the receipt. He, he opens it up and he doesn't put any money down. All he does is signs his name on the receipt. And he looks at us and he says, just leave her a great tip. And then we walk out. And I'm like, did we just steal a whole bunch of eggs and bacon? Like, what just happened? Turns out, Sam's dad owns the good egg. <laughs> Which is why they all knew him. And of course, they were, kissing, they were kissing butt, right? They were kissing up to the boss's son. They probably didn't even like Sam. They're like, oh, Sam, hi, Sam. Can we get you anything, Sam? His dad owned it. His dad owned the restaurant. So in this moment, something that he did revealed someone that he was. Some, some move that he made revealed something about his identity. And this is exactly what Jesus is going to do in a very powerful way in John chapter 5. Jesus is going to reveal who he is by what he does. What he does is he walks up to a man. Remember, there's this pool full of people who are desperately longing for healing, and he walks up to one of them, and he has a very brief conversation with him. And at the end of that conversation, he takes this man, and the text tells us that he hasn't been able to walk since the day he was born. It's been about 38 years. And he walks up to this man after four decades of being lame and unable to walk, and with the word of his power, Jesus makes this man's legs strong and his neurons fire and his body capable to stand up and pick up his mat and walk away from the pool. He heals this man miraculously. Now, this is the power of God on full display. And this is something that is amazing. Imagine just for a moment how you would have responded if you saw something like that happen in front of you. But what's so confusing about this, you would think that would be like an amazing story and people would celebrate and they would write newspaper headlines about it and it would be all over the Jerusalem streets and people would be talking about it and celebrating and lighting off fireworks and, fireworks and let's take all the sick people to them. But that's not what happens. In fact, there's a whole group of people who are very angry that Jesus has done this. Very angry that Jesus has done this. Specifically because he did it on a Sabbath day. And according to Jewish law, you were not supposed to work. You were not supposed to do any sort of labor on the Sabbath, apparently including healing a lame man who hasn't been able to walk for 40 years. And verse 18 tells us that they were so angry that they wanted to kill him. But I want you to see how Jesus responds in John 5, verse 19. I want to read this paragraph and then talk to you about it for a minute. It says, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. 
For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, so that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Now, I don't know if you caught it, but in the second half of verse 19, Jesus made a claim that is extraordinarily audacious. Jesus said something that is so crazy that if you or I said it, they would lock us away in a padded room. It's, it's nuts unless it's true. Right there, he said, for whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. And if I could translate that to you so it lands the way that it should, Jesus is saying, whatever God does, I do. Whatever God does, I do. It's almost like Jesus saying, you ever heard the song, anything you can do, I can do better. Now, obviously, the son and the father are one, so maybe the song would end without the word better, but anything you can do, I can do. Imagine you saying, or me saying, yeah, if God can do it, I can do it. We'd be like, wait, hold on, hold on. Like, we're, are we talking about the same thing? Are we talking about the God who spoke everything into existence? Yeah, I can do that. Are we talking about the God who right now, by the word of his power, holds the galaxies together and keeps them from spinning off into chaos in space? Yeah, I could do that. Are we talking about the God who can supernaturally intervene in the world that he created to reverse or change or influence anything? Yeah, I can do that. Jesus says, whatever God does, I do. <laughs> this is crazy, guys. And in the text here, there's two obvious things. He, he follows that statement up by telling us two obvious things that only God can do that Jesus says he can do. And if you're paying attention there, these two things are, number one, he says, I can give life to the dead. Did you see it there? He says, for as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, he says, God the Father, since he is the creator of life, can choose to give life at any stage to anyone he wishes at any time. So even if someone is dead, the Father can make them alive. And I can do that too. Now, only God can reverse death. And Jesus says, yeah, me too. And then he will go on to prove it, not only by raising Lazarus from the dead, Jesus' dear friend, whose tomb he stood outside of after four days of being dead, and he called into the tomb and said, Lazarus, come out. And he actually did. He waddled out like a mummy, alive from the dead. Not only will he make Lazarus alive, but in the power of the resurrection, he will make himself alive after three days of being dead. Only God can do that. Jesus is displaying the truth of God to the world by exercising the power that only God possesses. He says, number one, he can give life to the dead, and number two, he will judge all of humanity. He says, for the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. And then he says, so that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Jesus says, I am worthy of the exaltation and the worship that God is worthy of, because I am God. Now, 
Why should you believe Jesus when he makes these claims? That he can do what only God can do? Well, the whole reason that we have gospel records is it was critically important for us to have written down and recorded what Jesus said and what Jesus did. And remember, the idea we're talking about tonight is that the words and works of Jesus display the truth of God to the world. The reason you should believe that when Jesus makes these claims, anything God can do, I can do, is because we have historically reliable records of the miracles that he performed and the people that witnessed them and the world that was turned upside down by his historically verifiable resurrection. You should believe these claims that Jesus makes with his mouth because of what Jesus did with his life, because Jesus actually made the lame man walk, because Jesus calmed the storm with his words, because Jesus walked on the water, because Jesus removed leprosy by talking to it, because Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead and then raised himself from the dead. So if Jesus said, I'm going to be dead, and then I'm going to be alive again, and he did it, it means we can believe anything he says. We ought to trust him and believe every claim that he makes because he and he alone exercises the power of God. Now what's so remarkable about this is that there's two responses. There's two responses to this because, listen, maybe you think to yourself, Maybe even right now, you're thinking, yeah, right. Yeah, right. I mean, I studied physics last year in high school, and that stuff does not happen. No way. And maybe you think to yourself, okay, well, maybe, maybe, maybe it happened 2,000 years ago, but it certainly ain't happening today. And maybe if God would do a miracle around me, maybe then I would believe him. Maybe if I saw it with my own eyes. The only problem with that argument is that so many of the people who saw Jesus do these miracles wanted nothing to do with him. And we're not different from them. It's not as if we're so much smarter than the people in the Bible that if we saw Jesus do the miracle, we would respond a totally different way. And in verse 18, we are told that the people who watched him, the people who saw the effects of the miracle that he worked, are the very same people who hatched a plot to murder him because they were, he was interrupting their religious system. We're just like those people. It's way less about the fact that we don't have enough evidence that we can see or touch or feel in front of us. And it is way more about the fact that our hearts are hard towards God. And we don't want to believe what he says or what he reveals. Jesus, he displays the truth by exercising the power of God and the appropriate response. It's found in verse 20 and 23 that you would marvel at the Son. And that you would honor him as you should honor the Father. You are intended to see the power of Jesus Christ on display through what's been recorded in the scriptures. And you're intended to be in awe. <laughs> you're supposed to look at Jesus and what he did and what he said and say, whoa, that is awesome. I trust him. I believe him. I will follow him. There's one more display. It's this, Jesus displays the truth of God by giving the provision of God. Jesus fulfills the promises of God. 
He exercises the power of God, and he gives the provision of God. Now, in John chapter 6, we see this story that kind of revolves around human need. And humans are needy creatures. You and I are needy people. We need to breathe oxygen or we die. We need to ingest food or we die. We need to go to sleep or we die. There's a lot of things we need to do. And if we don't get these basic needs met, then we die. And yet, there are some even more fundamental needs than any of those things that I just described. And in John chapter 6, Jesus is going to perform another miraculous sign. And then he's going to teach people. He's going to help them actually understand the spiritual significance behind the sign that he performed. Now for just a minute, to kind of illustrate how incredible this sign is from John chapter 6, I want you to take a look at the number of people in this room. Just look around for a second and try to get a grasp on like how many people are in here. It's a lot of people, a lot of people in this room. Now I want you to imagine for a moment that everyone in this room, all of the hundreds of people that are here, imagine that all of them were hungry at the same time, and you alone were responsible to feed them. And you ain't got no dining hall over at Hume Lake. You don't have access to a Costco. You, ha you have nothing but what is on your person right now. And you're responsible to feed all of these people. And then do this. Multiply it by 10 to 15 times. How capable do you think you or I would be to feed all of these people? We would not be capable. That's the answer. There ain't enough cliff bars this side of the Mississippi to feed a crowd that large, and I certainly wouldn't have the food or the capacity. Jesus, in John chapter 6, he sees a crowd of 10 to 15,000 people. Right? You might know it as the feeding of the 5,000, but the text actually tells us that the only people that were counted were men. So it didn't, include, it didn't include all the women and all the children, probably about 10 to 15,000 people. And with the equivalent of a can of sardines and a couple Ritz crackers, Jesus miraculously feeds all of these people. And I have no idea how it happened. The text tells us that he prayed over this meager offering of food, and as he broke it and began to divide it, it's almost as if he broke it, and then the pieces were just as big as the original pieces, and he kept breaking and breaking and breaking and breaking, and then passing and spreading, and all of these thousands of people were able to eat, eat until they were full. And then they had baskets and baskets left over. Jesus is able to create resources and food from nothing with his miraculous power. Now, what Jesus says after this miracle is way more important than the miracle itself. In fact, the, the, the very occasion of Jesus feeding all of these people was only intended to set up this very important truth that he reveals to the people that he was talking to. Because what's interesting about this story is that Jesus feeds this huge crowd of people and then he gets in a boat and he goes over to the other side of the lake that he was on and the next morning, this whole crowd runs around the lake and they meet Jesus and they say, can we have seconds? The crackers and the sardines, they were delicious. Can we have some more? And Jesus says, no. 
He says, no, I won't give you seconds because that miracle that I did yesterday was intended to teach you a very important truth. Jesus, very quickly, he reveals the fact that his primary goal was not to fill their bellies, but to satisfy their souls. His goal was not to remove their hunger, but to remove their deep dissatisfaction and longing. And so he says this in John chapter 6, Jesus said to them, when they come to Jesus and they say, hey, can we have some more bread? Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And then in verse 48, he says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give you for the life of the world is my flesh. The true provision that Jesus gives is not the physical nourishment that he provided to these people, but the spiritual satisfaction that only he himself can offer. You see, so much of what we look to in this world to satisfy us does not do the job. Right? We long for satisfaction and No matter how great a night of sleep you have, you'll be tired again the next day. No matter how full your belly is with a meal, it's only a matter of time before you will be hungry again. And perhaps even in your life, you have felt the treadmill of dissatisfaction that you run upon. And you have chased after substances and entertainment and relationships. And you have longed for them to fill you up. And all they have left you with is a deeper ache and a bigger longing than you had before. A wider chasm in your heart and a bigger gap that feels like if I don't get something in here to fill me and to satisfy me and to take care of this longing. Maybe you feel that right now, like the ache and the longing to be deeply and truly satisfied. And when Jesus says this, he is saying to you that the ultimate provision that you long for is not something that Jesus can do, but Jesus himself. In fact, the point that I put on the screen could be rephrased. It's not that Jesus gives the provision. It's that Jesus is the provision. He himself is the one who can satisfy your soul. There's nothing else in this world that can do it. No matter how hard you look or how long you chase after the things of this world, they will always leave you empty. And so even if right now you feel empty, it is as if Jesus is knocking at the door of your life and he's saying to you, I know you've been looking for a long time, but I can satisfy you. Jesus would say to you, I created you, I know you, I love you, and I can satisfy you. I am the bread of life. If anyone eats of this bread, the bread of life, he shall never hunger or be thirsty again. The words and the works of Jesus, they display the truth of God 
to the world. And here's the truth. Here's the truth. If I had to boil it all down, the truth that Jesus displays through his words and his works, the truth is that he is faithful so you can trust him. He is powerful so you can depend on him. And he is satisfying so you can rest in him. The people in John 4, 5, and 6, they respond to Jesus in wildly different ways. The woman at the well, she goes back into her town and she tells everyone she can about the man she met who changed her life. The religious leaders in John chapter 5, they sought to kill Jesus. And in John chapter 6, all of these crowds who rushed around Jesus to receive a meal, when Jesus starts talking and teaching, they all abandon Jesus. So we've got affection, we've got evangelism, we've got hostility, we've got these wildly different reactions. The question that I would end on tonight is this, how will you respond to Jesus? How will you react to the truth that he displays to the world? He could not be any clearer. He says, you need a savior, I am the savior. You need healing, I am the healer. You need satisfaction. I am the bread of life. Jesus makes these incredible claims. And the fact of the matter is for you and me, there's only two possible responses. We will either reject him and scorn him as a lunatic, or we will receive him as Lord. And we will believe the claims that he makes. Which will you do? Will you look at Jesus and scoff? and dismiss him and say, I don't need you and I don't want anything to do with you? Or will you humbly bow before him the way, the truth, and the life, the one who displays God's truth to the world and say, I love you, I need you, will you rescue me? Jesus displays the truth of God to the world so that we can know it and experience it. Let's pray. Father, thank you Thank you that you don't leave us to wonder what you're like through the person of Jesus and through all that he says and all that he does. You have revealed yourself to us. That's so kind of you, God. I pray that in this room you would move our hearts to see Jesus for who he is, where there are scales on our eyes, you would remove them. Where our hearts are hard, I pray you would soften them. Where our ears are closed, you would open them. And God, I pray that through your word, as we see Jesus revealed, that you would minister to us in a really powerful way. And you would draw us deeper into trusting you and knowing you and obeying you. And God, I pray you would do all of these things for your glory. I pray them with confidence, and I pray them in dependence because I pray them in the name of the Lord Jesus. Can you say amen? Amen. Amen.